KPFK in Los Angeles, this is Living in the USA. I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Later in the show, Katha Pollitt takes up the question, what can we do about the 74 million people who voted for Trump? Also, for our Virus Time TV review, Ella Taylor has the week off. Our guest critic is Eric Foner. He'll talk about Will Smith's new six-part series on Netflix. It's about the 14th Amendment, which established birthright citizenship and guarantees equal protection to all persons in the United States, not just citizens. The show is called Amend. But first, Joe Biden, working class hero. For that, we turn to Harold Meyerson. Of course, he's editor-at-large of the American Prospect and a contributor to the LA Times op-ed page. We reached him today at the Prospect offices in our nation's capital. Harold, welcome back. Always good to be here, John. Well, Joe Biden is front page news this week for making a statement in support of unions. But why is that a big deal? Haven't all Democratic presidents been supporters of unions? Uh, no. And um, even those who have been supporters of unions haven't done what Biden just did in, in making the statement that he made, re releasing a video. Uh, you get some Democratic presidents before Franklin Roosevelt uh, who, uh, you know, were not exactly friends of unions. Uh, presidents like Grover Cleveland, who sent in the troops to break strikes. Uh, then you get more recent Democratic presidents uh, from the South, uh, Bill Clinton and Jimmy Carter, who had virtually no unions in their states, where they had been the states that they had been governors of, uh, Arkansas and Georgia, respectively, and didn't really pay much heed to unions or, or think about them very much during, during their presidencies. But even the presidents who have been clearly pro-union, let's say uh, a, a Lyndon Johnson and a John Kennedy, who more or less took unions for granted. Uh, and most decisively, there was Franklin Roosevelt, who signed the National Labor Relations Act, which is sort of labor's, labor's magna carta. Uh, but he never really spoke up in uh, major organizing moments. Uh, he he kind of, he, he did depart from past practice by like not sending in the army to break uh, strikes. Yeah. Uh, he didn't do that when there was a general strike in San Francisco in 1934. He didn't send in the army when the auto workers sat down in General Motors plants in 1937, both of which are key events in uh, the growth of worker power and American labor. Uh, but Biden has just spoken out at a moment uh, that could well be a key event. Uh, Roosevelt was strategically silent, and f compared to his predecessors, that was relatively progressive. Uh, Biden has gone beyond any other Democratic president uh, in terms of what he's just said relative to the organizing drive in Alabama. And what about Obama? The last four times there was a Democratic president and a Democratic Congress there were efforts made to reform labor law, and they they never got off the ground. Uh, Obama didn't really didn't really push that. And uh, while he again was supported by by unions, and in in particular uh, the Affordable Care Act was enacted uh, with a lot of pressure from uh, from labor unions, particularly the service employees, SEIU. No equivalent pressure was put by Obama on the Congress to enact labor law reform, as had been the case previously with Bill Clinton and uh, and Jimmy Carter, labor law reform so that companies can't get away with all kinds of outrages in, in trying to thwart their workers from unionizing. It's been on the table actually since, you know, the days of the Great Society, and it, it's never been passed. Now, there's a bill before Congress right now, which will pass the House called the PRO Act, which would, you know, level the playing field when it comes down to workers trying to organize. But I don't see how that passes in the Senate so long as there's a filibuster there. But let me let me contrast Roosevelt to what Biden did. And to do that, let me let me quote what Biden said. And this he did this in the context of a of a major organizing drive that's going on uh in Alabama at the massive Amazon warehouse in Bessemer Alabama, which is right outside Birmingham, Alabama. And Joe Biden recorded a video in which he said, unions give you a stronger voice for your health, your safety, higher wages, protections from racial discrimination, 
and sexual harassment. Unions lift up workers, both union and non-union, and especially black and brown workers, which, unquote, which really matters because, as not surprisingly, the workforce at uh, the Bessemer, Alabama, Amazon Fulfillment Center, as they call it, um, is overwhelmingly black. But he went, he said more. He said uh, that he opposed the kind of hostility and and uh, resistance that almost every employer brings forth when their workers attempt to unionize. He said, and Biden said, there should be no intimidation, no coercion, no threats, no anti-union propaganda. Uh, and of course, we already know from the media, and we've run stories on this in the prospect, if you go into a stall in a in a bathroom, there's an anti-union propaganda pasted in the stall where you might be sitting at eye level, according now, to let, our in-depth report. <laughs> let me just ask about that, though. Isn't isn't that kind of uh, harassment and intimidation illegal? Do they really have a right to, to propagandize the union in the toilet stalls? Unfortunately, they do. Uh, and unfortunately, also unfortunately, it extends beyond the toilet stall. It, uh, <laughs> it, it extends to meetings that employees have to attend, uh, which are not two-sided meetings in which management lectures them with uh, anti-union canards, and it it it, it includes people on the uh, managers walking up to individual workers on what we nostalgically call the shop floor, that is to mm. say, at their workstation, and lecturing them there. Uh, there's there's really uh, almost nothing that management can't do, including lie. And they have been lying hugely on one particular issue. They've been saying that if union, uh, if the workers vote to form a union, they will be compelled to pay dues. Well, actually, Alabama is a so-called right-to-work state, uh, and they cannot be compelled to pay dues. But nonetheless, Amazon has been, you know, shouting this from the rooftops uh, since the union filed for recognition. So, I mean, really, there are no penalties that amount to anything for what uh, companies can do, what employers can do during unionization drives. Uh, they, you know, I mean, actually, you know, they can fire workers and they can be sued, at, like the leading organizers who happen to be workers, and they can be sued afterwards for that. But, you know, if if they are, <clears throat> all they have to do is rehire the worker and uh, give him or her back pay. That's not a. That's not really much of a penalty uh, for something that can severely damage workers' rights to form a union. The cost of rehiring a worker and giving them back pay, compared to the cost of having a unionized workplace, I mean, it's not remotely comparable. So employers do this kind of stuff all the time. That is actually illegal. But again, the penalty is negligible. So just to be clear here, did Biden? directly say, I urge the workers to vote to join the union? He didn't say that. What he did say, and I'm quoting here, is no supervisor should confront employees about their union preferences. Every worker should have a free and fair choice to join a union. The law guarantees that choice, and it's your right, not that of an employer. It's your right. Well, you know, I mean, Amazon has been confronting its employees 22 times a day. Uh, so, uh, you know, while this isn't specifically directed at Amazon workers, um, it's it's very clear that he made it uh, in response to this uh, organizing campaign that's going on at this warehouse in Alabama. And he's basically telling uh, the workers, look, this is your choice, and uh, it kind of suggests they shouldn't pay much attention to what the company is saying. Yeah, yeah. Well, Amazon says they already pay higher wages than most employers in Alabama. Apparently, they they pay 15 or $16 an hour, and Alabama is a state where the minimum wage is the federal minimum, $7.25. So they're saying the workers should be grateful that they have such a high-paid job with such a generous employer. Well, a couple of things. First of all, uh, the union that is organizing the workers at, at that plant has some other factories and plants in uh, Alabama uh, where the workers make more. Uh, 
and and for work that is usually regarded as even lower paying. Uh, but the workers make more at the poultry plants that the uh, retail, wholesale, and department store union, which is the union that's organizing uh, the Bessemer plant, uh, the, you know, they, they pay them more in, in, in their plants. Secondly, I don't care where you live, 15 bucks an hour uh, doesn't get you very much. I mean, it may yeah. get you more in Alabama, certainly, than it gets you in New York or San Francisco, but uh, it ain't a lot. And uh, uh, a lot of other things come with a union contract, uh, usually. Uh, some benefits, some assurances, some job security. Uh, and uh, Amazon warehouses, let us say, are not famed for the levels of job security. So this would be the first time, if if this organizing campaign succeeds in Bessemer, Alabama, it will be the first time any Amazon workers have succeeded in forming a union, and there's 400,000 Amazon workers in America. Amazon has defeated all previous unionizing attempts for 25 years. And for this to happen in Alabama, which we do not think is being in the vanguard of working class organizing or states that are friendly to unions, that would be amazing. It would, and that's one reason why it's so important. It would be the largest such victory anywhere in the nation in a number of years, but uh, particularly in the in the non-union South. Now, to be sure, it's uh, in the greater uh, Birmingham area, which once had a bunch of unionized steel mills, yeah. but that was a long time ago, and you know, for that matter, Pennsylvania once had a bunch <laughs> of unionized steel mills, and it has many fewer now. But so, anyway, you look at it, this would be a groundbreaking uh, victory if, uh, if, if the union can pull it off. And that, I'm sure, is one reason why Biden decided to speak out. One more thing. Amazon, of course, is owned by Jeff Bezos. Doesn't he also own the Washington Post? He does. And, you know, he recently stepped down as CEO of Amazon, but it's uh, hard to believe that means he isn't uh, uh, at some level still running the show. And he certainly is its largest shareholder, which is why he's the richest person on 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 earth. Uh, he does own the Washington Post, which which you know gets him some cred and in some circles. But uh, you know, we live in a time when even quote enlightened capitalists, and I'm not sure Bezos has ever actually been described as that, but even when enlightened capitalists don't particularly embrace unions. Uh, there, there's, uh, you know, you, you look at the cult of social responsibility as articulated by CEOs. They talk about now stakeholder value, not just shareholder value. But when they get down to who the, they talk about the stakeholders, they almost never talk about worker power. Mm-hmm. That seems to be uh, beyond uh, their vocabulary. It's, it's, it's not in it. And, and, the, the synonym for worker power, uh, as we know it, is union. Let's talk about Biden's COVID relief bill, which is moving towards a vote in the Senate. Mostly the news has been about how that $15 minimum wage will not be in the bill and how that is a big defeat for progressives. But let's talk about what's left in the bill when the minimum wage is removed. Well, a tremendous amount is left in the bill. To begin with, there's a payment of $1,400 to individuals making $75,000 or less or families making $100,000 or less. There is uh, an extension of unemployment insurance, the federal add-on to whatever the state pays. There is an extension of a prohibition on evictions. There is a broadening of the aid to businesses, particularly focusing on small businesses. There are some pioneering uh, uh, child subsidy payments, child-rearing payments, $3,600 for children five and under, and it scales up to, up to the age of 18. So it really has a number of breakthroughs on social policy and relief policy, an additional $350 billion going towards uh, states and cities. And while some states are uh, basically in relatively decent shape uh, in terms of their fiscal balance and their economies, most cities are pretty desperate. So that's that's a very big deal. I mean, unless you want your uh, garbage collection and other necessary services uh, to be cut off. 
one last thing. We need our weekly update on the $15 minimum wage. Once, Where do we stand on that at this hour? Well, uh, not, not, not all that well. Uh, the, the, uh, House par- uh, the Senate parliamentarian uh, said the pr- provision couldn't be included in the uh, COVID rescue bill. Uh, and the Democrats, for a while, some of the more progressive Democrats, Bernie Sanders, were trying to see if they could level a, a, a punitive tax on larger employers who didn't pay $15, but that proved sort of unworkable, uh, both legally and in practice. And there was some pressure for uh, Vice President Harris, as president of the Senate, to overturn the parliamentarian's ruling. However, even if she had, it's not at all clear that two Democratic senators, Joe Manchin from West Virginia and Kristen Sinema from Arizona, would then have voted for the package. And so I'm afraid we're, you know, we're back on, uh, on, on square one. Uh, you know, Joe Manchin says, well, I'm for a minimum wage increase up to $11 an hour, which is, you know, over 725 but way short of what a living wage is uh, anywhere else. And it's still not clear how that can pass uh, so long as Republicans can filibuster it. Harold Meyerson, read him at prospect.org. Harold, always great to have you on the show. Always great to be here, John. It's the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. What are we going to do about the 74 million people who voted for Donald Trump? Katha Pollitt has been thinking about that. Of course, she's a poet, essayist, and award-winning columnist for the nation. We reached her today at home in Connecticut. Hi, Katha. Hi, John. Well, Trump got more votes than any other candidate in history, with one exception, Joe Biden. The one who matters. (laughs) But of course, not all 74 million Trump voters showed up at that Stop the Steal rally of his in Washington on January 6th. Only a few thousand went there. And the majority of those people did not storm the Capitol. Only 800 Trumpers did that. The rest stayed outside and yelled and shouted, which is their First Amendment right. So it's not really as bad as 74 million people. But John, one in five Trump voters supported storming the Capitol, and that's 15 million people. And 40% of Trump voters think he, quote, definitely won the election. And another 35% say he probably won. That's a lot of people. You're right. That's a lot of people. What are we going to do about them? Ann Applebaum, a writer for The Atlantic, has also been thinking about this. And she has a proposal on how to bring back the Trumpers. What's, What's her idea? Well, her idea, which she says derives from various peacemaking attempts in Northern Ireland and places like that that have been, you know, very, very violently fraught with differences. Um, She thinks we ought to concentrate on drawing the Trumpers in to sort of civic betterment, like Christmas decorations on Main (laughs) Street. No, that's an actual example. Christmas decorations. um, And... um, getting rid of the potholes in the road and that if you can get people working together on these, you know, neutral good things, they'll be less likely to kill you. (laughs) Well, uh, pardon me for laughing at this, but what do you think about Ann Applebaum's idea? Oh, I think it's very sweet, but I think that people are already doing those things. Um, The people who are going to kill you are not the person you have or have not been working on the roads with <laughs> something I have trouble thinking of myself doing. Um, it's it's the people who commit these political murders we've been having are racist loners, um, anti-abortion fanatics, members of militias, incels, you know, all these weird people that are very much on the fringes of society. And it would be very hard to imagine them 
sitting in the, you know, in a town council meeting discussing how to fix the roads because they're not interested in that. They're interested in um, owning the libs and uh, winning the civil war that they think is coming. So really this project has been going on since 2016 when Trump shocked us all by winning and we all did everything we could to understand how that happened. And one of the most important people we had was the Berkeley sociologist Arlie Hochschild, who had just finished spending five years in Louisiana with working class people and getting to be friends with them. And they are all Trumpers. And she published a book about them right after the election. She was a guest on our show. She said these people are her friends. Uh, and we can uh, we we need to learn about them. Uh, what was Arlie Hochschild's view of the Trumpers that sh were her friends in Louisiana? Well, she said that we, meaning liberals and blue state people, need Berkeley, to Berkeley faculty members, Berkeley faculty members need to climb the empathy wall, as she called it, or cross the empathy wall, and uh, you know understand what these people were responding to. And I, you know, I had very divided feelings about that book. I thought it was a, a great work of literature. She really has such a gift, which you see in her other books too, for making people come alive in the sort of fullness of their life. But I think she was a little tiny bit a victim of, um, what is it called? Native capture. <laughs> Well, I think she she liked these people and she identified with them so much that she forgot to ask some important questions like, did you vote for David Duke when he was running, like the majority of white people in Louisiana? Um, and she she really kind of scanted racism there that if somebody said, oh, I had black friends when I was young, you know, or I, I went to school with black people, that was that was enough. <laughs> and the, what she thought was the deep story of the Trumpers, oh, the, well, they were Tea Party, but I'm sure they became Trumpers later. Um, what she called their deep story was that you're standing on a line and people are cutting in ahead of you. And so they get the job instead of you, or they get the whatever it is that's that's going, the good things of life, that you have done everything you could to deserve. Now, who are these people cutting ahead? It's Black people and women. Well, so in other words, you want to continue to be a privileged white person and have all the unfair advantages that you've always and male advantages that you've already always had. Well, you can sympathize with that, you know, sort of like the rug is pulled out from under people when they're in midlife. But it was wrong that they had those advantages. You have to be able to say that. You know, at the very beginning of Trump's presidency, when we were first trying to figure all this out, you said something to me on this show that I've never forgotten. I was puzzling over the question of how could anybody vote for Trump, and you said, everything we hate about him, they like about him. I just got a, uh, an email after the column that you were discussing from um, someone who I'm sure is not using his real name, <laughs> uh, who after calling me, you know, a, a commie C-word, um, said, this is a civil war and we're going to get you. So there are people out there who really, who do see this as a cultural, a culture war to the death. But of course, of course, I'm always looking at the, the other side of this. A lot of his voters were ordinary, old-fashioned Republicans, people who always vote for their team and who are mostly interested in lower taxes and less government regulation of business and who basically don't care much about kids in cages, but would be happy for any Republican to, to be president. This is different from the people who stormed the Capitol, who there's been some research on who they are. Yes, there has. And it's really an open question how different they are, because a lot of them were middle-aged, had regular white-collar jobs. They had families and houses and you know, probably dogs and maybe a cat or two. And they were, you know, gave every appearance of being normal people. Um, and I think that we forget, we, we become so interested in these wild, wild-eyed Trumpies, so people like the QAnon shaman, for example, <laughs> you know, and that, that horrible guy putting his feet up on Nancy Pelosi's desk and all that kind of thing, that we forget that in order to be sitting in Congress today, Lauren Boebert, and 
um, Marjorie Taylor Greene. Marjorie Taylor Greene had to have gotten the lot a lot of votes from normal, non-crazy, non-shamanistic Republicans. Um, and, and you're absolutely right. Most people who uh, who vote for either party are they're voting for their team. They're voting for a few things that they want. In the case of Republicans, perhaps less regulation, lower taxes. Jesus told them to. Um, <laughs> It's a big mistake to conflate the Trumpers that Arlie Hochschild is interested in with the normal business Republicans who are middle class and upper middle class people. You know, everybody forgets that the median income of Trump voters in 2016 was higher than the median income of Hillary's voters. The key group here for us has been the people who voted for Obama twice and then switched to Trump. And there aren't very many of them. There's you know, a hundred thousand or a couple hundred thousand. Unfortunately, they lived in Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania, which you could argue they provided the margin that gave Trump the electoral college majority that he did not have in, in the popular vote. Uh, one of our friends who studied this group was Gary Young, who in 2016 was a nation columnist, and he went to live in Muncie, Indiana for the month before the 2016 election, the heart of the Rust Belt, to find out about what we call these people. What he learned was that these were people who had hoped Obama would help them. They wanted Obama to help them, and they felt Obama had not helped them, or not enough. And Trump now, in 2016, seem to be speaking to their problems, deindustrialization, declining incomes of, of ordinary Americans. And he said he would do something about it. And while they said they wouldn't really want to have Trump over for dinner, they wouldn't want him in their house, but he seemed to be interested in their problems. And so they wanted to, quote, give him a chance. These are the people, there are not a whole lot of them, as I say, there are not 74 million of these people, but they're the ones who we think we would like to win back. We would like to win them back. You're interested in that project too. Yes, of course. I mean, we need everybody that we can get because the Republicans have very successfully gerrymandered, which doesn't count in a presidential election, but it counts in other elections, a lot of other elections. They have gerrymandered, they have disenfranchised. Um, they're doing everything they can to shrink the electorate of potential Democratic voters and maximize the potentiality of people they think will vote Republican. So we need, we, we cannot afford to just say, oh, well, the heck with you, you know, we're going to just concentrate on the people we like. And there's also an issue of, of justice too, which is that there, there are terrible economic problems besetting many, many, many people in this country. However, I will say one thing, and that is, it's very interesting that when, you know, people say, oh, economic anxiety, that's why people voted for Trump. Well, you know, who has more ec economic anxiety than black people, Latino, Latina people? Those are the people that have really st struggled immensely. And they didn't go vote for Trump. So that tells you that there's something, there's either something else or something in addition going yeah. on. Yeah. Joe Biden seems to know this. He has tailored his pandemic relief bill and his Economic Recovery Act to help ordinary Americans get jobs, improve their incomes, have better lives. And we are hopeful, first, that Congress will pass this, and second of all, that they will notice. Yes, and I think one really wonderful thing would be the passage of the child benefit piece of the legislation, where people would get money every month to take care of their children. You know, so many, America's so weird because there are so many countries that have this already. And yet it's this seems like this weird, oh, we're paying you to have a baby kind of thing. You know, <laughs> well, you shouldn't have children if you can't support them. That's the way a lot of Americans think. But I think it would be a wonderful thing because child poverty and the poverty of the, of mothers is such a serious, serious problem. And it really holds the whole country back enormously. It's interesting that the best family support legislation has been proposed by Mitt Romney. He calls it the Family Security Act. Biden has a proposal like it. It's just not as generous. Romney's bill would provide all 
non-rich households in the country with $350 a month for every child they are raising younger than five, $250 a month for every child between six and 17. In addition to those, the thing you've been talking about, new parents would collect $1,400 just before the child's birth. Uh, I have a friend who lives in Iowa and who has a lot of um, working class Trump supporters in his extended family. He says this would be a game changer for, for his relatives. Yes, I think it would be a game changer for a lot of people. I mean, if you just think of Think of housing costs. Think of all the children that are growing up in falling down trailers and overcrowded urban apartments and everything in their life is difficult and crummy, including what they eat and what they wear and where they go to school. What a difference it would make if, if we could provide everybody with a decent childhood like you and I had. Katha Pollitt, her new column at The Nation is The Trumpers Among Us. You can read it at thenation.com. Thank you, Katha. Great to have you back on the show. Thanks so much for having me, John. It's always a pleasure. It's the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Now it's time to talk about the new Will Smith series on Netflix. It's called Amend, and it's about the 14th Amendment, which was ratified after the Civil War. It guarantees equal protection to everyone in the United States and established birthright citizenship for the first time. For comment, we turn to Eric Foner. Of course, he taught American history at Columbia for a long time. He's won the Pulitzer Prize, the Bancroft Prize, the Lincoln Prize for his work. Most of it's been about Reconstruction. He wrote about the 14th Amendment in his most recent book, The Second Founding, How the Civil War and Reconstruction Remade the Constitution. We talked about it here. He's written widely for the New York Times op-ed page, the Washington Post op-ed page, the TLS, the LRB, and The Nation, where he's a member of the editorial board. Eric, welcome back. Uh, nice to talk to you, John. Well, I know you told your daughter that people would find some of the history in this new Will Smith Netflix series on the 14th Amendment to be too simple. What was her response? Right. Uh, she said, Dad, nobody knows anything about the 14th Amendment. <laughs> so, uh, I found this uh, disheartening since I've written a lot of books that have to do with Reconstruction, and some of them talk a lot about the 14th Amendment. But I'm afraid that she probably has good reason for saying that. So, so let's, start, let's start there. Briefly, what was the 14th Amendment? Why was it adopted? What happened to it? Why is it important today? Which, of course, is the subject of six hours of Netflix. Yeah, I mean, the, the 14th Amendment is widely considered the most important change in the Constitution since the Bill of Rights, anyway. It's a long amendment, the longest one ever added, and it covers a lot of things that arose out of the Civil War. Number one, the consequences of the abolition of slavery. What are going to, what's going to be the status of the 4 million African-American men and women who had been freed uh, because of the Civil War? The 14th Amendment established in the first section, which is the most important, it establishes the principle of birthright citizenship. Anybody born in the United States, except Native Americans at that point, uh, is considered a citizen of the United States. Native Americans at that point were citizens of their own tribal sovereignties. Uh, it goes on to say that states cannot deny these citizens the equal protection of the law. Uh, no, let me take that back. It cannot, cannot deny to any person, which goes beyond citizens, to aliens, immigrants, the equal protection of the law or due process of law. And um, it also says that states can't abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens without naming what those actually are. In other words, the amendment put the idea of equality for all Americans into the Constitution for the first time, equal protection of the laws. It, it made the Constitution something that really related to the lives of individual Americans uh, in a way it hadn't been. Uh, before the Civil War, people could it, it, people could now constitutionalize their claims for equality and progress 
etc. And over the years, particularly the Equal Protection Clause has been used by all sorts of groups who were not really on the mind of Congress in 1866 uh, to expand their rights. The most recent example uh, is uh, gay men and lesbians who wish to marry and the Supreme Court's decision upholding the right of marriage or denying states the right to prohibit it uh, is very much an equal protection uh, decision uh, that they deserve the same equal rights before the law as any other uh, Americans. And of course, the 14th Amendment was used to overturn uh, school segregation in the Brown v. Board of Ed decision. Segregation said the court is inherently unequal and therefore banned under the 14th Amendment. One could go on with many important decisions that have arisen out of the 14th Amendment. I will note, though, that there are five sections, and that all that I've spoken of now is section one. There are other parts which have become very uh, uh, relevant lately. We will get to those later in the program. So the challenge facing Will Smith and his team was how to make a documentary about all this we know the form of the traditional historical documentary on TV. We've been watching it most of our lives, usually on PBS. Ken Burns is the master of this genre. An unseen narrator tells us what we're supposed to learn while the audience is shown images from the past. And then experts, talking heads, historians appear on screen to explain particular points. Will Smith wants to do better than that. He's got a lot of celebrities, and they don't just explain things. They speak the words of historical figures. They reenact historical events. He does show us documentary images from the past. Uh, he also has lots of fast cutting, lots of, he's on a glitzy set. He plays contemporary black music. We have hip talk by the hosts, uh, for example. Uh, episode one begins with Frederick Douglass, the great black abolitionist of the 19th century, and Will Smith introduces him by saying he is so much more than his killer fro. I wonder whether you consider this approach to be an improvement on Ken Burns and PBS. Is it, is it a good idea? Well, you know, I was involved very closely with a PBS documentary about Reconstruction a couple of years ago that Henry Louis Gates was the producer of. And I, it, I, it was very good. It won some prizes. It was in the more traditional mold, as you say. I think there is virtue in breaking up the mold a little bit and trying something new. I think, you know, the 14th Amendment is difficult to convey visually. Uh, it's difficult to convey uh, without a lot of talking about court cases and that kind of thing. And I think he wanted to make it uh, livelier than it might uh, otherwise have been. So, for, for example, let me just describe the opening segment on Frederick Douglass, his life as a slave, is told in animation. And then they have a wonderful award-winning actor, Mahershala Ali. He was Don Shirley in Green Book. He was the detective in True Detective on HBO. He portrays Frederick Douglass's arrival in New York after escaping from slavery walking through a set with giant uh, images of lower Manhattan in the mid-19th century. And then big surprises, various celebrities appear to do play other parts. Joseph Gordon-Levitt appears as Andrew Johnson. Joseph Gordon-Levitt was Edward Snowden in the Oliver Stone movie. He's, <laughs> he's come a long way. Uh, and then historians appear, David Blight, Christopher Bonner, Martha Jones... Khalil Gibran Muhammad, and you, and there's music, there's uh, a lot going on on screen, and it does keep you interested. Yeah, I, I think it, it is interesting. I think uh, Will Smith, I have never met him. I was interviewed for the show, of course, as you say. I, I think he probably concluded uh, that uh, historians can be fairly dull uh, much of the time. <laughs> I would never say that. And... Uh, Actors, actors whose lifeblood is how to convey text, you know, speeches and everything in a lively and engaging manner uh, can really be an addition. I, I don't have any objection to that. Obviously, this is not, you know, there's, a, there's some things that are kind of made up, like these cartoons and animations, etc. But the basic history is told in a pretty uh, clear and mostly 
effective way. So I don't have any objection. I, I commend him for trying to shake up the traditional TV documentary uh, system. They decided on six hours of Netflix TV, and that's a lot. That's a lot to fill up, And uh, but it is, it is lively all the way through. When it gets to the modern era, there's a lot more visuals available and things like that. Now, let me ask about how they organized the, the six hours. As you've explained, the 14th Amendment started out as being about the aftermath of the Civil War and the status of, of freed slaves. How did they decide to divide up their six hours and how much of it is about black rights, which, of course, have been the heart of what we historians have studied? At yeah, time. well, it starts off with um, the whole issue of citizenship. Who is a citizen? And making the point very well that before the Civil War, the Supreme Court in the Dred Scott decision just declared that no black person could be a citizen of the United States. Birthright citizenship in the 14th Amendment makes all African-Americans and anyone else born in the United States uh, a citizen, which is a major step forward for American society. Then they move on to the battle over this and the reactions against the 14th Amendment. The second section does a little about Reconstruction, probably not enough in my opinion, but then a lot of it is about the Klan and the resistance, the white supremacist backlash, which by the turn of the century had rendered the 14th Amendment pretty much a dead letter in much of the South as the Jim Crow system was being put into place. And then they move on to other groups. This is what some people might find surprising. Other groups for whom the 14th Amendment was a major vehicle for asserting their rights. The women's movement, they talk about the Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Pauline Murray and others and how they use the 14th Amendment to promote the legal uh, equality of women. The civil rights movement, of course, there's a section on that and the 14th Amendment being the core of the legal strategy uh, of the civil rights movement. Uh, then there's a whole, an hour about sort of privacy and marriage equality, which deals a lot with gay marriage and the Obergefell decision. Uh, again, 14th Amendment. And then the final hour is about immigrants and uh, seeking to obtain the rights laid out uh, in the uh, 14th Amendment. I think what's valuable overall is not only the specific history, but the sense that our rights are a battleground. Rights are contested. Putting something into the Constitution does not necessarily guarantee it's going to be enforced or enjoyed, that you have to be vigilant all the way through. They're trying to find a, a pathway between what they keep calling the promise of America, of equality, and the reality of America, which often in our history has not lived up to that promise. But nonetheless, it's a kind of upbeat show. It keeps saying, well, the 14th Amendment can be, you know, can be made more powerful uh, if we just try to do it. And it's there to further help uh, create equality uh, in, our, in our society. So, so it comes a lot of ground and it comes a lot of different kinds of Americans, which I think is all to the good. Although, as I said, I, my, as, a, as a historian of Reconstruction, I was a little disappointed about how Reconstruction and the 14th Amendment as part of a much bigger effort to create a interracial democracy uh, in the post-Civil War South, how that gets a little bit lost sight of in the focus on the specific amendment uh, as, as the key to the story. So some of this is familiar to, to everyone, uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, everyone knows who she is. Others are very unfamiliar. Pauli Murray is a name that probably is not known outside of civil rights historians. Yeah, Paul, it's, I appreciate the fact that they emphasize Pauli Murray, who really devised the uh, legal strategy using the 14th Amendment to claim greater equality for women. Her writings strongly influenced Ginsburg's legal cases in the 1970s and 80s where she was uh, really using the 14th Amendment on behalf of women. So that's, uh, yeah, that's probably new to people even who knew something about the women's rights movement and, and uh, that sort of thing. Other parts of it, uh, the civil rights movement part is probably pretty familiar, uh, even though it's now uh, 50 years ago. Uh, you know, people have seen this on TV a lot, <laughs> various aspects of the civil rights movement over and over again. Nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with people being reminded of it. But it's probably 
more familiar history than some of the other aspects. And the final episode on immigrants is all, again, fine since immigration is a big public issue today, uh, but um, it, it lacked focus uh, in, in a way that the other uh, were, uh, episodes were not necessarily guilty of. But overall, six hours, I'd say, as a historian, to the extent that people learn more about our history, that's good. You mentioned at the outset that this is all about Section 1, but there's more to the 14th Amendment. Especially notable, something you've written about for the Washington Post, is Section 3. Nobody paid any attention to this till a couple of months ago when you brought it up. It bars from public office anyone who gives, quote, aid or comfort to rebellion or insurrection. And... We had an insurrection on January 6th, the storming of the Capitol. There seems to be some sudden relevance to Section 3. Section 3, If you uh, two months ago, if you had gone and asked even law professors, what is Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, they would have scratched their heads and said, gee, I don't quite remember that very well. It's a little more complicated than you said because the people banned from office have to have taken an oath to support the Constitution beforehand. This is to bar ex-Confederate leaders, people who had been public officials before the Civil War or military officers who took an oath of allegiance to the Constitution and then um, joined the Confederacy and, and broke their oath, obviously. Uh, but it's not just confined to them. It, it has rarely been enforced, but it was enforced against some local office holders during Reconstruction, and it was even enforced in the early 20th century in, in Congress. Yes, yeah, so I wrote an article saying, you know, this impeachment is all very well and good, but you could bar President Trump from public office by using Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. If Congress declared that he has taken an oath of office and then given aid and comfort to the enemies of the Constitution, that would be sufficient by majority vote, not two-thirds, to uh, bar him from future public office. Whether this will actually happen, I don't know, but that's in there. The 14th Amendment is, it, it's an example of the fact the 14th Amendment is trying to create a kind of new regime in the United States. One based on equality, one based on loyalty to the nation, loyalty to the constitution, so excluding the leaders of those who led the uh, rebellion. And, uh, and so it, you have to look at the whole amendment not just about what it's trying to accomplish, not just Section 1, which has been the focus of litigation coming out of the 14th Amendment. Eric Foner, he's one of the historians featured in the Will Smith six-part documentary Amend on the 14th Amendment, showing now on Netflix. Eric wrote about Section 3 for the Washington Post. He wrote about the entire 14th Amendment and its history in his most recent book, The Second Founding, how the Civil War and Reconstruction remade the Constitution. Thank you, Eric. Great to have Thanks you on the show. Much, I'm good to talk to you. One more thing. It's time for What Does Science Say? It's a special feature of this program. Today, what does science say about the effects of Black Lives Matter protests? Well, scientists have found that in cities where you had Black Lives Matter protests over the last few years, Killings of people by the police decreased. They went down. The police killed fewer people. That's scientific evidence that protest has effects, that BLM action in the streets has changed things big time. The study reported in the magazine Scientific American found that cities where BLM protests have been held experienced as much as a 20% decrease in killings by police. The result is an estimated 300 fewer deaths nationwide during the years 2014 to 2019. That means the protests of the summer of 2020 were not even included in this study. And that means there's at least 300 people alive today not killed by the police as a result of Black Lives Matter protests. Many cities with larger and more frequent BLM protests experience greater declines in police homicides, but not all cities experience declines after the protests. Police homicides increased in Portland, San Francisco, St. Louis, and my hometown of Minneapolis during the five-year period studied. The new study compared 
police killings in cities that experienced BLM protests with those that did not, it's a hard thing to study because it's hard to get true facts about police killings. The federal government does not track police officers' lethal use of force. That's been the work of media and grassroots organizations, which attempted to fill the void using different tools, Freedom of Information Act requests, and crowdsourcing efforts. The LA Times, for example, maintains a list of people killed by law enforcement in LA County. You can find that at the website homicide.latimes.com slash officer underscore involved. Well, the obvious follow-up question is why? Why did the police kill fewer people in cities that had BLM protests? That's a question science has a harder time answering, and your interpretation may be as good as theirs. Maybe police chiefs and mayors told police in cities with BLM protests not to kill people. Maybe there were changes in police policy. Maybe cities hired more women and people of color as police officers as a result of BLM protests. Scientists say cops who are women or people of color are less likely to kill people. Scientists say BLM protests also led departments to require body cameras and to expand community policing policies, which may explain fewer officers using lethal force. And that's What Does Science Say for Today, a special feature of this program. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. That's it for today's Living in the USA. Our sound editors are Will Broughton and Alan Minsky. Our social media maven is Renee Reynolds. KPFK's programming traffic director is Matt Perez. KPFK's general manager is Aniel Zuberi Fields. Thanks as always to Rye Cooter for our theme music Mambo Sinuendo. Living in the USA is recorded and produced at our Blythe Avenue studios in Los Angeles. If you miss part of this show or any of our recent shows, you can listen online anytime you want at livingintheusapod.com. I'm John Wiener. We'll be back next week talking about politics, thinking about the left, and living in the USA. Living in the USA.